You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. As we head into Halloween week, Crystal and I thought we'd switch things up a little bit and talk about different cultural traditions about dealing with the dead. One way to learn about being human and to learn about culture is to understand some of those traditions, customs, and practices associated with funerary rites, with burial, or with other forms of dealing with the dead. As Crystal says, we all die, so (laughs) every culture has to deal with the dead. Uh, So today we're going to talk about some of these practices around the world, and um, in some cases, right here in the United States, through our own history. And Crystal, extreme history in particular, deals with uh, death and cemeteries quite a bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we do. We do a lot of cemetery tours in October, as we're kind of in the middle of October right now, towards the end of October. We're we're often in the cemetery. <laughs> we find ourselves there quite just frequently. Just hanging out. Just hanging out. <laughs> we do a lot of... Ready to chat someone up. Just yeah. chat, chat about tombstones you know that's what we do so but we we do a lot of walking tours but we also do workshops we also do other programs that focus around the symbolism of headstones the uh, history of people in cemeteries so we we do a lot with cemeteries and and I do find myself in the cemetery quite often, not just the local cemetery, but cemeteries all over Montana. You you go visiting to cemeteries. <laughs> do people think that's morbid at all? Do you think it's you know, a morbid interest? You know, I think that a lot of people think cemeteries are scary. Cemeteries are morbid. morbid. But I think a lot of people have a lot of grief and sorrow around cemeteries, uh, rightly so. Of course, they are places of sadness because that's where we leave our loved ones oftentimes. And so it to me, I'm often more in the historic parts of the cemetery. And so, uh, but I try to balance that. You know, I try to balance my interest with cemeteries, but know that people find these places very sad as well. And they're not places that some people want to go because they equate it with sadness and grief. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that. So, you know, I think about cemeteries as these places of grief and sorrow, but I also think of them as places of beauty, of of art, 
of land, beautiful yes. landscapes right. and nature, the trees in the cemetery. And our local cemetery change so much during the course of the year. In the spring, there's lilacs. In the fall right now, it's just oh, it's beautiful, beautifully brilliant with colors, reds and oranges and with the green grass. And so right. it's just gorgeous. And a little bit of snow tinged, you know, especially yeah, in um, the mountains. As, as we go it's in. It's a place yeah. to remember uh, who we are and the people that we love and, and yeah. those things. Yeah. So I'm excited that we're talking about cemeteries today because they are outdoor museums. They are places where we learn about ourselves and those who came before. And I often think about a more recent past, but you think about a more deep past, a more deep past with cemeteries. And so I was just wondering if you could talk start us off by talking a little bit about that and talk about when people started burying their dead so and and I guess that's the question that I have for you is when did people start burying their dead and how did they start burying the dead in the beginning right because we come to think of it as very normal to either bury your loved one in a cemetery for in our culture anyway or even to cremate them and, and have their ashes in an urn somewhere and of course, that practice had to start at some point back in our past. So I got very interested in this question when I began teaching anthropology. And from what I have been able to find out in our deep past is that early humans, as far as we know, started to do something like burying their dead around 100,000 years ago. So modern humans evolved about 200, 250,000 years ago in Africa, at least this is what paleoanthropologists like Dr. Shara Bailey, who we had yeah, on, have yeah. been able to demonstrate with fossil data. And in Kafsa, Israel, in a cave, we get one of these early shallow burials. It looked like someone took the time with stone tools to carve out enough of a hollow in the cave to carefully lay in somebody who had died. And in a few cases, there's either some red ochre, that um, that red pigment that is has used even f- that far back in the past and then all the way up through modern times to, to make that um, red paint that we'll see either on pottery or on rock art, but also put in some stone tools and some animal bones. So these aren't elaborate graves, and there are very few that we have found. Um, so... What that meant as far back as 100,000 years ago is hard to say. Yeah, yeah. So that that burial that you just talked about, that was 100,000 years ago. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. I think a lot of my students ask, is that the beginning of us seeing ourselves as becoming human in the sense that thinking about an afterlife? And it's really hard to say if that's what people were thinking when mm-hmm. they put those people in a a shallow grave in in Kafsa, Israel. But we know that right near that, um, Neanderthals in a different cave in Kabara, Israel, also laid to rest some of their dead and included also some animal bones and things like that. Uh, There's another example potentially of a burial in Kirpina, Croatia by a Neanderthal and one that's a little bit more controversial in Shanadar, where possibly Neanderthals 
placed a layer of flowers above mm. the individual and then covered them over. So they found a pollen layer when they were excavating. Yeah, that's the one I've heard about. And that's the one that is always so fascinating to me to think about, you know, the laying of flowers, because flowers are still so important to us with, with burial practices. We so. recognize ourselves in that. Yeah. And they seem so human when we think about yeah. that. Um, so that's quite far back. That's quite far back before we have any sense of really different other aspects of culture. Humans are just beginning to develop the traits in their artifacts that allow us to even distinguish one group from another, and there's not that many of them. But to dig a grave for somebody is pretty labor-intensive, and probably not that many people were disposed of in that way. We think a lot of times hunter-gatherers, from what we know of them, which people would have been at this time, always moving around, not creating permanent shelters, they also aren't creating necessarily permanent places for their dead. So they might have left a place where someone died. Sometimes there's ritual burning. So they move on, leave a member of their community laid to rest in some way where nature can then decay them. And and there's no lack of respect necessarily in that form of dealing with the dead. But things start to change a little bit um, about 50, 60,000 years later. Mm. So in the Paleolithic period, where we have a lot more modern humans in and around Europe, in Russia, we have a pretty amazing burial. There's a man who's about 40,000 years old, excuse me, his body is dated to about 40,000 years ago. He's not that old. Right, He's right. only 40 years old. Um, and he was buried with one of the most elaborate um, potentially burial costumes that we've seen on on anybody until we get to maybe Egyptians. So he, he was probably wearing an outfit, a hat, and a tunic or something that was decorated with over 3,000 mammoth ivory beads. Wow, that's unbelievable. Right. Fox canines, these things were fashioned and drilled, and archaeologists estimate it might have taken 10,000 hours of labor to make all those beads. Wow. And then these were just put in the ground. So were these um, beads sewn onto the the clothing, the hat and the... Good question. It looks that way because of how they're found around his uh, skull and around his torso in areas where you would have expected there to be clothing. Those did not preserve, but they also were pierced. So it looks very much like they would have been attached to a garment. And then all that was put in along with um, ochre again so so symbolizing something did he need this yeah. garment for the afterlife what were these people thinking was yeah. he a leader is this the beginning of um, wealth differentiation social mm-hmm. inequality there's all sorts of speculation but the other thing that's fascinating about the paleolithic is most people weren't buried at all Sometimes we just find a skull or a femur or a bone clearly placed somewhere, but not a whole body, not interred in the ground. And then we also get a series of burials of young people, people pre-adolescent who are buried also with hundreds and thousands of beads, some laid side by side, some laid head to head, and from the 
physical anthropologists, we know that in these cases, a lot of these subadults had physical deformities. We can see it mm. in their bones, in their head, in their legs, and they probably didn't survive to adulthood. And yet here they have some of the richest burials at this point in time. Mm, that's fascinating. What does that say? What does that say? You know, and I guess I also think about what aren't we seeing? What has not survived? Right. What, you know, were there others buried that we just haven't found those burials because they eroded or they were washed out or they were um, destroyed in some way or another? You know, what are, we're probably seeing such a small percentage. Or are we? Absolutely. You know, or are we? Maybe there was just a small percentage that were buried. Maybe there was only ever a few, or maybe we've lost a lot. We, We know this is overlapping periods where there is a lot of cave art in other parts of Europe, um, but it seems to be not incredibly common. At least we're not finding a lot. And when you think about the amount of labor going into construction, constructing the grave with stone tools, but also all the items buried in them. Um, It shows you that people had a fair amount of leisure time or were willing to make those efforts. What were the circumstances? We might not know, but there's archaeologists working on that. So I have to ask you about the red ochre. The red ochre is always so interesting to me, too, because like you said at the beginning, we see it so long ago, 100,000 years ago, but we see it almost all the way to present being used. Can you speak to red ochre for me just a little bit? It's so interesting because it's one of the earliest kinds of pigment we find way, way back, maybe even as far back now as 300,000 years ago in Africa. And you can only surmise that the pigment itself having this bright red color, that wasn't that difficult to get that pigment to work. When people found um, hematite and ochre lumps, They would carry it with them from place to place, and they probably were painting their bodies way before they were painting other artifacts or on walls and things like that. And probably just that symbol of red and blood and life and something like that must have, it seems to be cross-cultural, and it seems to have such a deep history associated with human symbolism. So interesting. Mm, Maybe we'll see some other symbols when we get to more recent periods that are (laughs) are persistent like that. Yeah. So you talk about the Paleolithic and the hunter-gatherers, but what about when people started settling down in villages? That's a great question, because now things are different. You're not... Um, as mobile as a group of people. So you don't really have the option to just leave behind a place where when someone dies, sometimes people thought then it was uh, an event that required you to move on and maybe even ritually cleanse the place with fire. But once you're settled in one place and you've committed to tending that soil and the plants that are there, What do you do now with bodies when people die? So what seems to be so fascinating is some of the earliest villages we have in that Fertile Crescent area, one of the oldest uh, continuously occupied sites at Jericho, other early ones at Ain Ghazal uh, in Syria and Abu Huraira. This is now we're talking 11,500 years before present. So the very beginnings of domestication. During this period, People start burying their loved ones or their dead under the floors in their houses. Hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Such a close connection with death. 
such a close connection. Something that we don't have any longer, I don't feel. And something that makes my students very squeamish when oh, I, I tell them about I it. Oh, I bet. <laughs> makes me a little squeamish I as mean, well. it, it, right. It makes, uh, we think about laying people out in parlors mm-hmm. when uh, it's that morning period, but this is permanently putting somebody underneath your floor. So we start to think about what would have been the reasons for that because we see it over a fairly large area in the Near East. It seems to be something where people want to mark that maybe their ancestors have been there because now showing that you're tied to a specific place, especially if it's fertile ground that you want to farm and pass on, showing that your ancestors have been there for a long time may give you more rights to that territory than others. In some cases, we also see the development of this skull cult, where not only do they bury the body under the floor in their house, but they also then dig up the skull. Now it's decayed a bit. They've defleshed it, and then they plaster it. They put shells on for eyes, and they might Mm -hmm. stick it in the corner of their house. So there is your ancestor right there for everybody to see. Right, right, right. It's kind of that... um, that ancestor worship um, aspect of cultures that many, many cultures have. Many cultures. Yeah, had and have. Right, and some people still talk to their ancestors. We still see that in in our own culture. Um, So so having that physical presence. And people were fairly hygienic in how they dealt with these things. They had various means to uh, deflesh. In some cases now we see um, at Chateau Huyuk, another early agricultural village, This village was constructed almost like a pueblo in that the only way you enter each house is through the roof, but there were thousands of houses butted right up against each other. What time frame is? um, So this is about 9,000 BP. So we're talking about 7,000 BC. So in this same time frame, we still see burial under the floors of a lot of people and skulls removed. And it looks from some of the ways that the bodies have been defleshed that they may have believed in sky burials. Have you heard of those? Mm, I have, yeah. So sky burials, more recently, we know to still be practiced by certain Buddhist sects in Tibet and in India and in Bhutan. And you leave the body out in a high place so that vultures would be able to pick away at the skin and the muscle, not necessarily the tendons, but that action of uh, vultures actually then reduces um, odor and decay. So then Mm -hmm. you would be able to bundle the body back and lay it beneath the floor of your house. And then we know that they plastered over these floors many times over, but right there in the home. So that's something that's a major transition that we see. And then towards the end of that early agricultural period, that's when we first begin to see people selecting areas outside of the village to start burying deads or cremating them and putting them in pots Mm -hmm. and putting them into sort of a graveyard area. Not necessarily marking the surface with anything, but you would be able to see places where yeah. people have been and they would know put in. they would know where those places were. They were probably sacred areas in some in some way. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that's long oral tradition histories passed down, so people understand who is is left where. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I think just thinking about the having your family members in your house, it is comforting to think about that. And I think we're kind of circling back around to that now with um, 
cremations um, mm. and having those uh, remains in our houses. Yes. And it does have a sense of comfort to have your family members close to you. So I can see why they would. I think that's so interesting. And, and also with cremation, what I've been thinking about since my own parents passed is that mm-hmm. rather than having them be in a cemetery where you may no longer live near to visit that spot, with a cremation and an urn, you can take that with you. It's portable. So it's yeah. almost the opposite of maybe what we saw the transition to farming, where now people are staying in one place mm-hmm. and they want them as part of their home because mm-hmm. they want to say, this is where we are from now. This is where our people are from. This is how far back we go. Now we want to be able to take our loved ones with us. And maybe mm-hmm. an urn is an easier way to do that than a particular one place on the landscape since our society now is so mobile generation to generation. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So what about other mobile societies, other nomadic societies? How did they uh, deal with burying their dead or, or taking care of their dead? Yeah, because not every society settled down for agriculture. So we know in the Eurasian steppes, people stayed nomadic once they domesticated the horse. We have all kinds of, we know about the Mongolian Empire, and we have this these period during the 5th century BC where the Scythians were known to be very mobile, very successful group. The Greeks talk about them, and this is where the myth of the Amazons comes from. But what these um, Scythians did leave on the landscape are not villages or domestic structures, which they moved with them and, and didn't leave behind, but they did leave behind these mounds called kurgans. And their kurgans are actually their burial structures. They're sort of these conical mounds, and inside you can find often more than one burial. Sometimes you find an individual buried with their horse, since that was probably such an important part of their identity. And this is where, in a lot of cases, we think we're finding our first evidence of actual Amazon warriors. So mm. some of the burials, so women warriors, some women warriors mm-hmm. who previously archaeologists when they found spears or daggers out of metal, sometimes beautiful metal, sometimes gold, buried with a body, the presumption was that it must be a man. Now that we can go back and retest some of the skeletal remains for DNA, we're finding that a good 25 or 30% of these burials are females. So it seems that women had the possibility of becoming warriors. A couple of them even have um, amazingly bowed legs, showing that they were riding horses for most of the time, even from a young age. So maybe there was a path that led to becoming a warrior. Certainly other women were buried with more domestic items, so it wasn't all um, Scythian women, but it certainly is a really wonderful overlap with archaeological information with what we know from historical sources like Herodotus, even yeah. if he may have exaggerated about them cutting off right. their right breasts so they can <laughs> shoot their arrows better. I can't imagine that, but <laughs> I can't either, frankly. So the jury's still out on right, that aspect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so interesting. And to think about these, these women and, you know, were there um, families that were warriors so that these women just automatically went into the, it, to, you know, continued right. their their father's or their mother's line and became Was warriors? Was it like a caste or, system yeah. you were born into? You were in the warrior caste? Or 
did you have opportunity based on your skill set or maybe only orphaned girls yeah. who knows but we start to learn so much by a by looking at cemeteries and looking at the whole range of who's in them and what kind of variation we see by age by gender or sex by um, the amount and kind of grave goods that are with them so when we do have cemeteries we get a tremendous amount of information about the society its structure and their beliefs often that's amazing. You know, that's what I love about archaeology is the science of archaeology uses all these different sciences to bring in all this different information. Like DNA has been huge for archaeology. Huge. We're learning so much more about the people from our past, but also, you know, the artifacts and the soil and the context, all the context around these burials is so important and all so these different important. sciences that they t- chemistry that they tap into to right. better understand right and one great example of that is um folks who have done reconstructions of egyptian mummification so we all have a fascination with that because we know so many of the the wealthier set of the ancient egyptians left such amazing tombs behind and so many grave goods and huge texts and art with them but one thing uh that has mystified some archaeologists were why there isn't a lot of dna preserved in those egyptian mummies And one particular archaeologist thought it might have something to do with the mummification process himself. So he decided to recreate exactly the steps involved in mummifying an Egyptian body. So he had to get all of the materials described in ancient texts together. And he went to Egypt to get the very type of sodium carbonate that naturally occurs in the um, the natron, the Wadi natron area, 60 miles north of Cairo, uh, frankincense, myrrh. Mm, wow. He got obsidian blades um, and all of the information for um, uh, how long you would have to work to mummify a body before you then finally put it to rest in its tomb. So Bob Breyer is this anthropologist, and he's done an amazing job recording what that process was like. He was able to acquire a dead body that was donated to science. So um, <laughs> came thank, by it honorably. Thanks to that person. Thanks, who did that. Thank you to that person also, <laughs> very important. And he said about... Um, looking at how you had to construct a very, very large six-foot embalming table with these planks, because when you put a deceased body on there, not only do you have to take out the organs, but that deceased body has so much natural liquid in it, Mm -hmm. all that sodium carbonate is what's going to pull out and desiccate that body so that it can be preserved better. And also, it, it just takes out a lot of the, the fluids and the odor and everything with it. So you need 400 pounds of that underneath the body wow. if you're laying it out where all the fluids are going to come down. And then you make little packs of it with frankincense and myrrh, and you put it inside. The Egyptians cut very small inside slits. Inside the body? Exactly. Okay. okay. So in order to get out the organs that they felt were important to preserve in the afterlife, they made very small incisions. They really didn't want to mess around with a human body. They didn't even know a tremendous about, amount about anatomy. So they would make small slits in the abdominal area, and they would remove the intestines, the stomach, the bladder, 
They'd go up and remove the lungs. They'd take out the liver and the spleen, but they'd leave the heart. Mm. Why did they leave the heart? They thought the heart was where all the thinking was done, and they felt Mm. that the deceased would have to know the magic spells to get across to be able to get into the afterlife. So they left the heart in place. They also left the kidneys in place. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists now think it's because they didn't necessarily know that they were there. Because they made such small slits, they didn't really open up a person and see where all the organs were. So kidneys were often left inside. So they kind of just... um extracted what was close to the slit and the kidneys um are kind of in the back towards the back exactly so then they'd put in those packets of sodium bicarbonate and they would um uh, wait about 35 to 40 days and the body would lose about 100 pounds of fluids and you'd remove all of that it would be like wet sand you'd take it away and then you had this desiccated body that still was flexible enough that you could cross the arms Mm. over it bind it up and then it would probably continue to lose another 15 to 20 pounds and then it would be entombed and the one mystifying thing for bob Breyer was how they got the brain out Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, this is kind of icky. (laughs) The stories that we always heard growing up were that they would extract it through the nostrils, that they would have this hook with uh, that was made of bronze, and that they would go in and pull it out. And frankly, that never seemed right to me. Yeah. I didn't know how you could pull the brain out through the nose. I thought that could work. You did? Well, that was the best theory they had. That comes from, again, Herodotus, who never saw it happening, but had heard something about a metal implement being Mm -hmm. stuck up through the nasal cavity. So what Breyer and his assistants found out was that the only way to really get the brain out was to take that metal tool, insert it through the nostrils, and whisk it around and turn the brain into, like, a smoothie. If you whisked it around, it would liquefy, and then you could just pour it out the nose. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I kind of like the other way better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the past isn't always pretty. It it isn't. It isn't. You're you're exactly right. (laughs) That's how they got the brains out, which they didn't think were very important or much needed. Yeah. Very interesting. Because it was all held in the heart. Right. All the thinking was in the heart. Right. Mm. Now, the Peruvians didn't do that. They didn't whisk out the brain. Peruvians started mummifying much earlier than the Egyptians, a couple thousand years earlier, about 7,000. Um, BP, so about 5,000 BC. Egypt was about 2,000 years later. But Uh they would sit their mummies upright, maybe remove some internal organs, and sometimes uh, the flesh, and then they'd reflesh them, put wigs on them and masks, Mm. and then wrap them back up in, in reeds, and then much later elaborate textiles. But then they would be placed somewhere very special, sometimes very high where they believed if you're on a mountaintop that's where their deities lived sometimes in some sort of shrine especially much later as late as the inca Um, we still have cultures in uh, the andes mountains doing this and they would parade their dead around these mummies during festivals they would offer them food and beer and figurines so again your point about being much closer to the dead we see this very often uh, um, around the world. Yeah. 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 We're so much more removed these days. Right. Right. Mm. We are. We are so much more removed. And I was just thinking of the book that you and I both um, read, and the author's name is Caitlin 
Um, do you remember what book I'm talking about? Oh, gosh. And yes. she talks about that um, quite a bit. She talks about um, death and how it is expressed in different cultures. And she talks a little bit about that. And she also talks about um, how some cultures uh, will mummify their their family members and then keep them around and this is happening currently as well and kind of keep them around in their households and in um within and in using them in their daily lives so yeah i'll have to put the name of that book in the in the show notes she has Um, a couple of books she has a couple of books right one of them i think is called Will my cat eat my eyeballs? Yes. Questions she's (laughs) gotten from people about if they die alone with their cat in their house. So I think no was the answer to that one. Thank goodness. Um, But coming more recently, um, talk to us a little bit about the area of your expertise, Crystal, when we're going back to early sort of colonial European burial customs things that are a little bit closer to yeah. to us today. So kind of fast forwarding, I guess, till the 1600s, the 1700s and in colonial America and thinking about uh, how people buried their dead at that time. And of course, people had transitioned, uh, Euro-Americans had just transitioned from Europe. And so some of these customs and traditions and ways of burying come directly from Europe. But they often would bury their people in churchyards. So churchyards are the the, the area right next to the local church. And these and early was right in these in these burial grounds. And they weren't often called cemeteries, but they were called burying grounds okay. and churchyards. And so they would bury them close to the church because of course the church was kind of the focal center of life. The church was um, a sacred area, and so these churchyards were considered sacred ground, and you wanted to bury your family member in sacred ground, and so that's where they would put um, family members, oftentimes outside in the churchyard, but if you had status or money, you could actually have your person buried inside the church under the inside floor. Inside the church. I've seen that in yeah. some places, and of course and, which always seems in... strange to me until you go to Europe, and yes, then it's much yes. more common. It's much more common, but you still you see it here on yes, the East Coast yes. as well, and so the people who had the money could do that, um, but most people people were buried outside in the churchyard. And was the idea that you want to be closer, because your faith tells you about the afterlife, mm-hmm. if you're associated with the church, that then that's a better place for you to be because you're more likely to go to heaven. To go to heaven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it was the the closer to the altar that you were buried, the, mm. the better it was. So, okay. you know, that was your goal to get as close to the altar as you could. Um, and that maybe reflected your your status yeah. in the community, that yeah. how close you could get. Okay. Yeah, and but like I said, most people were buried outside in the churchyard. But if you were outside, you wanted to be on the east side of the church because, of course, that's would get the most sun. It was the brighter oh. side of the church. The north side was not as favored because mm. the north side was darker. And they talk about uh, the north side was more apt to have evil spirits circling around, wow. whereas the east side was was kind of the the good place to be. So, sure. so that's kind of interesting. So churchyards were it. Of course, if you lived out on a farm, people would bury their uh, family 
at the farm as well. So that was part of the burial practice. If you couldn't get into town, if, if you wanted to, if you had a farm, you could bury your your family there or a um, and that farmstead. was considered also mm-hmm. acceptable. Mm-hmm. And okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, as time went on, those churchyards were not very large, and they started they started to fill up. And this was, oh. of course, was happening here in America, so but it had happened. Yeah, yeah, it had happened in Europe prior to this, and so Europeans were figuring out ways and and means of burying people. Sometimes six or seven people deep. Oh boy! Um, but you know, a storm comes along. There's a lot of water. Things start flooding. The water table is it's not bad. that. Oh. It's a bad situation. And what about things like the the catacombs in yeah. Paris? Is that yeah. a way to deal with? So that was a way to deal with centuries this. Yep. of of dying people and where to put their remains. Yeah. So what would happen is you would bury people six or seven deep, and then that was full. That was kind of the max. And so when that happened, they would exhume all those bodies. And at, at that point, they were deflushed. They um, were basically, you know how you were talking so about. So they'd re-exhume. They would okay. re-exhume, and then they would um, put those bones in ossuaries. Okay. So uh, just places where there were um, lots of bones. So they would just hold those in an ossuary, which was often part of the church or near the church. And at that point, did people no longer know exactly who those bones right, belonged to? Right, I, I mean, see. that was over generations so and generations. Generations and generations yeah, later. Yeah. Okay, but, but still they knew finding that a way people to... were in that ossuary or okay. in that church. Okay. So it was um, because they did have memory of some you know they they might not have known who exactly that was but they did have memory that those were their people right. and that was significant and important okay and so um so this was all happening in Europe but in America and the catacombs like you said right. catacombs were part of this as well and um but in America these churchyards were filling up so they had seen what the Europeans were doing and thought Okay, well, you know, we may need something a little bit different here. So and we have a lot more land. To move yeah, we have into, some land. Right. We got we got places to move into. Okay. Um, the native people didn't appreciate that. I am but. sure I was going to say there may be people on it, <laughs> yes, but they yes, were looking yes. at it. Okay. So in the nineteen, or I'm sorry, in the 1830s, they started thinking a little bit more seriously about this, and a group of people started thinking about something called a garden cemetery. So a cemetery that was outside of town, that was lush, it was beautiful, um, you could interact with nature when you were visiting your family member. And so this garden cemetery idea really took off. This is so interesting. So it no longer became overly important to be right in a churchyard, right close to the church. Right. Now there's different values. I mean, sort of a, a practical concern was those were full, but... Now there's a whole different way to think about where you want yourself or your loved ones to end up. Right. And okay. our views on spirituality are Began changing. Began changing, transcendentalism. Right. And all all these things, things are changing. Okay. So that really plays into this as well. Um, so, the, so this garden cemetery idea took root. And in 1831, Mount Auburn Cemetery opened just outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Is that the first one? This was the first one. This okay. was kind of the first foray into this idea. And, and But it took off because Mount Auburn was and is a beautiful cemetery. This was a huge area. It was 70, 72 acres to start off with. And they had... they 
created ponds. It was a definitely a structured environment or a, a so landscaped like a environment. So like a park you might go visit yeah. and stroll around. Yeah. So when you say it took off, what does that mean? Exactly? That means that everyone liked this idea. They're they didn't like, all go off themselves to get in it. No, they just no. decided to get a plot or reserve yeah, something. Reserve. Okay. And you probably had to be of a social... Um, you know, a kind of a financial in a financial position to uh, have a plot. So it in wasn't free. It wasn't. It wasn't free, and it wasn't for everybody, of course. But if you were of a certain class, if you were wealthy enough, you could definitely um, have a, a plot in Mount Auburn. But of course, after Mount Auburn, then this idea of this um, cemetery, kind of outside of town, in a beautiful landscape, really was. Um, looked on favorably, and other cities started to do that all around the country. So the idea was very popular. Yeah. So and now it really, get it outside and away from mm-hmm. where everybody's living. And then you can, you know, before this, the churchyard and visiting your family members who are buried there was not really um, something you would do on a Sunday afternoon. It wasn't something that you would look forward to doing. But at places like Mount Auburn, you could go and spend the Sunday afternoon, take a picnic, stroll through these beautiful landscapes, visit your loved ones, see your neighbors. It was more of a park-like setting. Such a different experience. Yeah, much different. more kind of community and mm-hmm. communing with nature to some degree. Right. And, the, you know, that nature movement was taking off. So this was called the Rural rural cemetery movement and it really took off and so kind of let's fast forward even more to the 1860s oh boy and that's a a rough time it's a rough time in our in our history of course the civil war raged from 1861 to 1865 and so um rural cemeteries were part of our uh, how we, how we, you know, most cemeteries were now rural, and and every town in the West, for sure, where we right. live here in Montana, and in the West, when towns were platted, the cemetery would automatically not be in the center of town, but be kind of just outside of town. So that was almost from the very beginning of founding a new town. They'd also mm-hmm. designate an area where they might bury people who were dying early on. Right, okay. right. Okay, tend to be on, on a hill, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Ours is. Um, our local cemetery here is on a hill. Oftentimes they're, they were on a hill if there was a hill available. Right. <laughs> not always. Hills are not always available, but ours is. tricky, yes. So, so, and then, of course, the Civil War comes along. And so many people die. So many people die in the Civil War. 620,000 people is probably a low estimate, but it's estimated that that many people died. Husbands, brothers, sons, fathers. And then, of course, women and children were dying as well within this Civil War. And so there was so much grief and sorrow after the Civil War that our nation went into mourning collectively. Yeah. And so we refer to this time frame as the Victorian period, kind of that late 19th century. And of course, that also refers to Queen Victoria in England, right. who lost her husband in 1861. Um, and she and he, um, Queen Victoria was very taken with her husband. They actually yeah. had a very much of a loving relationship. And so she went into permanent mourning when he died. Always dressed in black. Always after. dressed in black. So she And she was such a dominating cultural force mm-hmm. in so many ways. But then this culture of mourning. So it was this combination of, of Queen Victoria going into permanent mourning 
And then all these women being in mourning in our nation, our country was in mourning. Mm -hmm. And so mourning and burial customs and funerals, this time really had an emphasis on death. And because of that, we have a lot of symbolism in our cemeteries that reflect this time period. So I just wanted to talk about a couple um, headstone symbols that are, are reflected from this time. And before we do that, Crystal, we're just going to pause here and say that it's Crystal Alegria, Nancy Mahoney, co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, doing our Halloween episode where we're talking about customs of surrounding death and funerary rites, different cultures. And right now, we are talking about the Civil War era, Victorian era in the United States. And thanks for joining us. Okay, Crystal, back to you. Okay. So there's this symbol that you will probably see once I mention it. You'll probably um, remember that you've seen it in a cemetery at some point in time in your life. But it's called, the symbol is called the gates ajar. Oh, yes. Have you seen this? I've definitely seen that. Just slightly open gates. Yeah. Yes. So these massive gates. Right on a headstone. On the headstone. And the the, um, photo or the the picture on the headstone is of these two huge gates just kind of open and and just ajar, open just ajar, just a little bit. I'm just assuming it's the gates of heaven. It is. It is the gates of heaven. And oftentimes there are stars above the gates. And that gives you that sense that these are the gates of heaven. You know, you're going through the pearly gates, um, the gates of heaven, but they're just opened ajar. So this gates ajar idea came from a book um, that was written in 1868 by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. And it was a novel, and it was called The Gates Ajar. And the story follows a young woman who is grieving the loss of her brother who died in the Civil War. She finds solace from her aunt, who tells her that the gates of heaven are not closed, but always remain open ajar. That way souls can pass back and forth between heaven and earth. And in this way, loved ones who have passed are always able to observe friends and family who are among the living. Okay, so it's not just what I was thinking then. Sure, it's the gates of heaven, but the idea is that they're not gone away completely to right. heaven. That they gate can is not closed. Back. That's yeah. so interesting. And what a lovely thought. But that comes from a novel. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. Mm-hmm. It comes from a novel. And, you know, it is a really comforting thought to people probably who had lost their family members right. to know that, you know, they can somehow still be in touch with the, with that family. And that it and comes so, from popular culture yeah. sort of instead of from a sermon or the church specifically, but in a time when probably people really needed that comfort. That's Mm -hmm. so interesting. So this book, The Gates Ajar, was a bestseller. It was a hit. It was a hit here in the United States, but also in Europe. And it was, it just took off. So there's this symbolism seen on headstones, but it's seen in other ways as well, like pins, women wear wear pins of these gates ajar Uh and you know all these different ways so it really took off it was kind of like the harry potter of the 1860s i mean it was it was if you mentioned it everyone everyone knew what what you're talking talking about about. so um so anyway this gates ajar was was really was just a huge bestseller a big hit do we have any gates ajar symbols here in bozeman we do we have I mean, I've counted at least 10 or 12. I'm sure there's so many more in the cemetery. But every 
cemetery. Like I said, I go to a lot of cemeteries. <laughs> and I see the gates ajar in every cemetery. And that's it's, amazing. And that's here in the West. You know, in the East, um, it's very prominent as well. I'm sure even more so. Yeah. So what about, I see hands a lot on gravestones. Tell, yeah. tell me about that. So hands are really prominent in cemeteries on headstones, the symbol of a hand. And you'll see it in a lot of different ways. The most uh, probably the way you see it the most is a finger or a hand with a finger pointing up. Okay. And that yes. just means that the person buried underneath that tombstone is going to heaven. Okay. That they lived a good life and were able to go up to heaven. So the hand, the finger is pointing up to heaven. Sometimes you'll see um, a hand with a finger pointing down. Oh, no. I know. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Oh, oh good. Because that would be not know, such a nice thing to do to someone. No, no, it wouldn't. So that, what that means. <laughs> what does that actually mean? It means that the hand uh, is the hand of God pointing down to the person to grab that person and bring them up to heaven. Like okay. like God is going to reach down and bring that person up. Okay. So those are the... Whew. I yeah. know. Whew. I know. <laughs> good, good, good. So the other um, hand symbols you'll see in the cemetery is a hand with a heart, uh, kind of a hand facing out with the heart in the palm. I have seen that. And yes. to me, that's the most beautiful one, yes. the most beautiful hand. And we have a few of those in our local cemetery too, but you see them all over. And that means that the person who died was very charitable and generous, and they gave their heart openly. Oh, so, isn't that's that lovely also. I, know, I yeah. love that one. Um, you'll also see another one you see quite frequently is two hands clasped together. And kind of like in a handshake gesture. And what that means, this is a very Victorian symbol. And what that means is that there is possibly a man and a wife um, buried there. And they are were together in life, but they are grasping and holding hands in death as well. Oh. So sometimes you'll see the hands clasped together and you'll see a, a man's cuff and a woman's cuff. Oh, that's lovely. So you'll see that, yeah. Aww. And then sometimes with that handshake, the man has his finger pointing out below the hand, and you'll see kind of the finger popping out, and that means that he's a mason, a oh, Freemason. He would a be finger more. popping out. Yeah. Why is that? That just was the, the symbol. That's just how they des- is that designated their secret that, that handshake. It's kind of like the secret, you know, Whoa. the secrets of the Masons, yeah. but it's not that secret. But. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's kind of interesting. And sometimes you'll see the hands clasping with two male cuffs. And that means that um, God is reaching down and grabbing the person to bring them up to heaven. Okay, a so, lot of that. A lot, a lot of, of God that. Reaching I mean, this down. is you know, but this is in a in a cemetery that was. This is, you know, these tombstones were placed in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, in the West in a in a small town in the West that had very Christian values. So these are all very Christian right. symbols and Christian ideologies. That doesn't mean that these weren't um, used before Christianity. They probably were. Hands have been used forever to symbolize different things. Right. You know, so. Right. And now you see all kinds of symbols on headstones in cemeteries. I've seen yeah. trout jumping, yes. horses, and all kinds of amazing things, the MSU symbol, bobcat symbols, yes, all kinds of things yes. in Bozeman, and um, it's certainly expanded. But 
it seems always the sentiment is to say something about the individual that's positive and and that celebrates their life right. and and how their memories ongoing. Yeah. It can always symbols in cemetery on cemetery headstones can always tell us a lot about the community and tells us a lot about what the community valued. Right. So not just about the individual, right. also about that that community and that point in time, what's important. So I have to ask you, Crystal, before we we move on, um, have you ever seen any ghosts (laughs) in all this time you spend in the cemeteries? You know, Nancy, you're not the first person to ask me that question. (laughs) I get that question all the time. Do you really? About our work in cemeteries and how we're, we're in cemeteries all the time. And so people ask, ask the ghost question. And, um, and you know, coming I back think, through the gates ajar yeah, to know, have a chat to- with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think of ghosts a little differently when it comes to history. Um, not that I don't believe in ghosts, um, paranormal ghosts, um, but I often see ghosts when I'm doing my work. And what I mean by that is that I see ghosts more through the eyes of of kind of that historical gaze than the paranormal gaze. So uh, don't get me wrong. I always keep my eyes open for real ghosts. Okay. I'd love to see a real ghost. I haven't. I haven't. A actually, nice one. A yeah. nice one. A Casper like yes. ghost. <laughs> um, I haven't seen a paranormal ghost in the cemetery, but I see historical ghosts every day in the mm. documents that I read, in the historical photos that I look at, the cemetery headstones that I look at. Um, you know, I I, I often. Um, um, see things as I think they would look in the 1870s, since uh-huh. that's kind of 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. You know, that's kind of the world I often lived live in. And so I, I often will be driving down a street and see a parking lot, but know that a historical house was there. And so I see that historical house on the street. And that's the same way in cemeteries. I'll often be uh, looking at the headstone of, of a famous person here in Bozeman and see that person. And so, yes, I do see ghosts in that way. But <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. And, and to me, I think just what you said, cemeteries, whether I'm approaching it as an archaeologist or more like a historian, like you're talking about, they are really the essence of history in the present. They're right yeah. there. Uh, how people were left, people who were thought about, loved, cared for, and how that group of people wanted them to be remembered. And so we have so much that's right there of the past and present, literally touching each other, which is fascinating. And, you know, I think the ghosts are kind of the in-between. They're the thing that brings that together for us. So, like, we want to see a ghost because... That means it's real, it's tangible, that past is real, that past is tangible. And so just to dive down a little deeper with the this idea of um, ghosts and especially ghost stories, because we're in October, we're telling ghost stories right now and, right. and thinking about ghost stories. And, and so ghost stories definitely have their purpose. They really tell social histories. And I, I've thought a lot about this by reading the work of Taya Miles. She's a historian, and she's written a book called Tales from the Haunted South, Dark Tourism and Memories of Slavery from the Civil War Era. Oh, wow. And in that book, she really um, 
kind of dives deep into this idea of ghosts and ghost stories. And a quote from her from this book says, ghost stories can convey fringe knowledge that is otherwise suppressed or avoided in public life. So ghost stories are used to understand history. They are a way for us to better understand our past. And ghost stories bring history that is usually taboo to the foreground, making it more mainstream. So ghost stories are vitally important. And um, Taya also talks about how ghost stories often bring out cultural wounds that have never healed. How many ghost stories did you hear, Nancy, growing up about Indian burial grounds? Indian burial grounds and somebody who desecrated them in some way or ignored the warnings to leave them alone. It is always about some sort of uh, often physical violence or trauma. Whenever I've heard a ghost story, somebody's been Mm -hmm. murdered, something unjust has happened, and then that soul cannot rest. So... That's a very insightful way of thinking about ghost stories, yeah. not just about an individual, but but even more broadly about a, a culture and yeah. something that's happened in the past that's not healed. Right. So there, these stories are a direct result of the history of colonization, of stealing indigenous land, and this history has not been healed. So it comes out in ghost stories as a way of haunting us. Yes. We showcase this history at a distance through a ghost story, so we don't have to think about it too much. We don't have to focus on it. Right. We can hear it, and we can understand it, but then we can set it aside. We can set aside saying it's it's not real. It's mm-hmm. not, yeah. And of course, that's what we do at the Extreme History Project. Um, that's what we are all about is bringing out, we do the same thing. We bring out and talk about this history that hasn't been healed or these histories that have been suppressed or are pushed under the rug. So ghost stories are important to us, and we've had to think more deeply about the idea of ghosts. So when you asked me about ghosts, that's, right. you got, a, you got a, a lot there. <laughs> right. right. I mean, I think of mass graves and that trauma, and, and that is, it's like those big unhealed histories that surround how we dispose of the dead and think about it and the stories we tell. Yeah, yeah. So ghosts cemeteries, and burial customs have a lot to teach us about the past, but also about who we are today. Yeah. If people want to learn a little bit more on their own or in some way engage with our local cemetery, how could they do that? Well, there's um, always, you know, even if you're not here locally in Bozeman, there are at this time of year, uh, ghost walking tours or cemetery tours, all these tours happening in local cemeteries, usually um, at this time of year. So go take a walking tour through a cemetery or just go and, and walk through your local cemetery yourself, because these tombstones will tell you a lot about the people who are buried there. Um, here in Bozeman, more locally, we have partnered, the Extreme History Project has partnered with the local Bozeman Library to create a short self-guided cemetery tour. So stop by the Bozeman Public Library, pick up the free brochure, and take a short stroll through our local cemetery and learn about some of the ghosts of Bozeman's past. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That sounds like a wonderful idea for all of our listeners. So this is Nancy Mahoney again co-host with Crystal Alegria talking with you today about cemeteries 
and how all cultures deal with the dead and what this can tell us about ourselves, about what it means to be human. So until next time, stay curious and tune in again for The The Dirt Dirt on on the the Past. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.